Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking at the uh, sanctification and dealing with uh, fighting against the devil. And this is Standing Against Satan Part 4, I believe, and I'll be reading 6.11 to, I believe, 17 or 18. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. <coughs> Here's our text, verse 14b. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's our text, the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to stand and quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all prayer, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We'll stop there. The second item needed for the Christian's armor is the blessed plate of righteousness. This is uh, verse 14b. Stand therefore having on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a very crucial piece of armor in that it protected the vital organs from severe or fatal injury in battle. In the ancient world, the breastplate could consist of small overlapping pieces of metal attached to cloth or leather. Originally, people would wear thick leather, and then they learned to attach little pieces of metal all over it, like the fish scales on a fish, and that would, that would stop you. And, of course, it covered your whole front down to your upper thighs and your whole back, and it would be attached by straps on the sides. And, you, and we read in, in Kings how one of the evil kings, an arrow, went right in that side thing and killed him because uh, God told him it would happen. So that's, that, that's one way it, it was made. And then there was another that was made of metal chain mail, which was light flexible, yet protected against sword slashes and stabbing attacks. Uh, we are also all familiar with the solid metal breastplates of armor common in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> and once again, they would attach at the sides. In a world without antibiotics and good surgical procedures, wounds to the lungs, liver, heart, intestines, or kidneys would almost certainly be fatal. You could take a stab in the arm. You could take a stab in the shoulder. You could take a, a hit to a certain part of your thigh. Uh, you get you get stabbed up here, and it's over. So it's very important. The breastplate covered the whole torso from the neck to the waist, and there were even some that covered the upper thighs, on both the front and the back. The breastplate is identified as righteousness. And here's one of those passages where excellent scholars disagree as to what righteousness means in this passage. There are two views, and we'll, we'll briefly consider them, and I'll show you the one I prefer. <clears throat> Does Paul have in mind the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is received solely by the instrument of faith? Uh, this is the view of John Gill, Charles Hodge, R.C.H. Lenski, John Eady, DeWitt, Harless, Matthias, etc. So a lot of people hold this view, and it tends to be a view preferred by Lutherans. Lutherans tend to focus on the imputation of righteousness. This is an objective forensic righteousness that's the righteousness of declaration in a law court, 
of course, it's the declaration of God the Father in the heavenly court in, in the court in heaven that you are righteous based not on your own righteousness but on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this righteousness guarantees you a title to eternal life. Remember, the law requires two things. It requires you can't have any sin on your record, which brings guilt and the curse of the law, the liability of punishment. And the law requires perfect obedience. It has a negative and a positive. If you're going to enter heaven, you have to have a record of perfect obedience. Well, we don't have that record. Well, who does? The second Adam, Jesus Christ. He obeyed the law in exhaustive detail perfectly from birth till death, and it is his righteousness reckoned to our account called the righteousness of Christ, sometimes called the righteousness of God, sometimes called the righteousness of the one, that is imputed to us, reckoned to our account by God, and we're declared righteous in the heavenly court. So that's one interpretation. Or does Paul have in mind the righteousness of sanctification, which is a result of the Holy Spirit working in us. It's subjective. A righteousness that is personal, where believers grow in grace as they walk in the Spirit by more and more putting off sinful thoughts and behaviors, and instead habitually obeying the Word of God. And this is the view of John Calvin, Matthew Poole, Meyer, T.K. Ibot, Alfred, William Hendrickson, etc. Vincent, Grinnell, A.T. Robertson. Now, some interpreters simply say it can mean either one or both. For example, Matthew Henry. They, they try to apply it to both forms. <coughs> Those, and of course, sanctification always assumes and presupposes the foundation of justification. Now, those who argue that Paul is speaking of the imputed righteousness of Christ offer some, the, some of the following arguments. First, Philippians 3, 8-9, the apostle did not depend on his own righteousness. He makes that very clear. He regards it as rubbish. But the righteousness of Christ. This statement is certainly true. But Paul in Philippians 3 was discussing <clears throat> justification, that forensic imputed righteousness that's objective to us, it's something Christ did, he's not discussing sanctification. We contribute nothing of our own when it comes to justification or God's declaration that we are righteous in his heavenly court. <clears throat> but with sanctification, we must personally obey God's moral laws and follow the commanded worship given to us in Scripture. It is true that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the foundation of our sanctification, and that we cannot repent or follow Jesus without an interior work of the Holy Spirit. But our continued standing and waging war against Satan and the demonic hosts is a fruit of justification. <clears throat> and so it, we're speaking here likely about the category of sanctification. Second, and we're still looking at arguments in favor of it being the righteousness of imputed righteousness of Christ, which Lutherans tend to favor, although Hodge, Hodge believes it. Christians need a perfect righteousness, and such a perfect obedience is only provided by Christ. The righteousness 
that merits life eternal must be perfect, that is, it must never waver or be deficient one iota in thought, word, or deed for one's whole life. Now, why is that? Well, God is perfect ethically. God is holy ethically. He's absolutely righteous and holy. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot tolerate even one sin. The one sin of eating the forbidden fruit in the garden caused Adam and Eve to die spiritually and be cast out of the garden. So this idea that we can work our way into salvation, which is taught by Judaism, modern Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism, Islam, all the cults, is certainly incorrect and certainly satanic and false. Our good works are tainted with sin, even our best works. The law cannot be broken even once, for even once it merits the penalty of death and the curse. <clears throat> Only Jesus, the second Adam, achieved this perfect obedience to the law. Once again, while this teaching is critical, it's absolutely true, it's taught in Scripture very clearly, how does forensic justification serve as a breastplate in our defensive struggle during our life against the attacks of Satan? Now, we could look to our justification and appeal to it against the accusations of the devil. That's certainly true. He's going to talk to you and tell you you're not good enough and you're bad and you might as well give up. And, of course, whenever he does that, we appeal not to our own righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, that's true. It could strengthen our faith and perseverance. These crucial truths, however, are covered in the fourth piece of armor, the shield of faith, verse 16. Although the perfect righteousness of Christ is necessary to repel doubts and accusations of the devil, it is best to regard Paul as speaking of sanctification or a personal righteousness wrought in us by the Holy Spirit as we put off sin and obey the word of God. And let me give you the reasons why. First, these instructions come in a section on sanctification, and the apostle has already employed the word righteousness in a personal ethical sense twice in this epistle. 4.25 and 5.9. Beginning with chapter 4, and as I noted in the introduction to the section, Paul does this frequently where he'll discuss forensic justification, he'll discuss Christ achieving a perfect salvation for us, and then at a certain point in the epistle he will shift to sanctification and personal godliness as a fruit of that justification. And he does the same thing in, in Ephesians. Beginning with chapter 4, Paul emphasizes the need to live lives worthy of our calling, verse 1. To no longer walk as the Gentiles, verse 17. <clears throat> to put off the old man, our former corrupt pagan conduct, verse 22. To put on the new man, which is in accordance with our subjective transformation, in true righteousness and holiness, verse 24. This crucial teaching is followed by a section on how to obey a number of the Ten Commandments, verses 25 to 32. The theme of personal sanctification continues in chapter 5 with exhortations and warnings related to rejecting sinful behavior and living carefully in accordance with the Word of God. Sanctification is also applied to marriage, verses 22 to 35, families, uh, chapter 6, 1 to 4, and relationships between masters and servants, chapter 6, 5 to 9. So from chapter 4 all the way to the beginning of the section, the subject has been 
sanctification in all its varieties and forms and different applications of sanctification. And that's common with Paul. And it's totally in agreement with the Old Testament. The, the Jews, the Israelites, the people of God were saved. They were delivered by the blood of a Paschal lamb. They were delivered to, and they, as soon as they were delivered, what did they do? They went out to the wilderness and God gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Second, the use of personal righteousness as a weapon of our warfare is found in other epistles. <clears throat> Paul speaks of an important part of his ministry being affected by 2 Corinthians 6-7, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The armor, Greek, hoplon, meaning utensil, weapon, implement, tool, or armor of righteousness is given to the Christian by the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the word, so he will give his body and mind over to God as an instrument of righteousness. In Roman soldiers, the, the armor in general, was they were called hoplites, related to that word. <clears throat> the use of the right hand and the left hand is usually interpreted as personal righteousness being used both defensively and offensively. If you uh, saw Roman soldiers in battle, uh, when they weren't using spears, or it wasn't the guys with the bows and arrows, they would have a shield in their left hand, and they would have a short, double-edged sword in their right hand. So they're, they're, they're taking blows with the shield, and they're attacking with the sword. <clears throat> Personal righteousness, which refers to a habitual, sincere obedience to what God requires in his word, is offensive in that it is necessary for family and societal dominion. It is defensive for it is necessary for resisting temptations and enduring afflictions. You're going through something really bad. You have somebody you know who dies of cancer, a loved one, or your business goes under, or something happens. You know, your house is ripped apart in a tornado. Uh, it's the Word of God, your faith in the Word of God, that enables you to endure that, because you know that life is not meaningless. You know that we don't live in a chance universe, that God's in control, and that ultimately whatever happens to you, if you obey Scripture, will work to your good. When speaking of personal sanctification in Romans 6.13, Paul says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves as, to God as alive from the dead, and your members as instruments, and that's that word again, hoplon, of course it's in the plural, instrument or weapon, of righteousness to God. So we're saved by Christ to present our whole person to God for his service in order to promote righteousness as defined by the Bible. The spread of Christ's kingdom involves personal righteousness, which is to an, ex an extent to every aspect, to extend to every aspect of life, business, economics, science, the arts, education, politics, the courts, etc. As light dissipates the darkness, the gospel and the teaching of scripture, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, will overtake the powers of darkness, and it will overtake, of course, the influence of darkness in your life. Very critical. And then third, <clears throat> so we had the immediate context, we had the context in Ephesians, we had the other, the other way it's used in sections of, of the epistles by Paul, and now we come to the Old Testament passage from, of which Paul alludes. Uh, the Old Testament passage where Paul probably took this imagery speaks of personal righteousness or justice. In fact, in the Greek Septuagint, the, the wording is almost identical. Isaiah 59, 17 speaks of Yahweh putting, here it is, 
on putting on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now this passage cannot be speaking of an imputed righteousness, for God is ethically or morally perfect in himself. Yahweh is righteous in the manner in which he saves his people and in the punishment he places on his enemies. The passage will go on to talk about God's vengeance on the wicked. God saves his people in a manner that reflects and honors his own perfect righteousness, Romans 3.26. Those who are unsaved are judged with perfect justice according to the record of their sins. So, in conjunction with most commentators, although there's a whole bunch that favor justification by faith view, uh, we're going to look, we're going to regard this as a subjective righteousness, the realm of sanctification. So let's look at how the breastplate of righteousness works. To understand how putting on the breastplate of righteousness works, we need to look at how our sanctification takes place. And we'll, be, we'll try to be really brief, because uh, one could write a big, thick book on this. There are a number of elements. First, and this is critical, there is the judicial foundation, which is the vicarious sacrifice of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, and his victorious resurrection, which due to our union with the Savior leads to an experimental or subjective foundation, which is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice this in Romans, Galatians, other places. When Paul discusses sanctification, he talks about our union with Christ. Why do you repent? Why do you have faith? Why do you strive to follow the Bible instead of live like a heathen and sort coke and go out and get whores? Well, the reason is, it's because union with Christ. When Christ died, you died. When he rose, you rose. In him, positionally. And, that, and therefore, you're, you have a change of mind, a change of heart. And that's the beginning is regeneration. Whenever Paul speaks of why believers must be holy and live acceptably, and live righteously, righteous lives for Christ, he discusses union with Christ, regeneration, and or definitive sanctification. And the best place for that is, of course, Romans chapter 6. He raises the Jewish objection to Christianity. Hey, if we're justified by Christ and we don't have any works to contribute to our justification, to our salvation, might as well go out and have fun and sin all we please. And that's, those are the words of the antinomian. And Paul says, God forbid. And then he goes off on a very lengthy dissertation on union with Christ as it, as it relates to our sanctification and why we don't go break the law, why we strive to obey the law. <clears throat> Because in our unconverted state, we were dead spiritually, Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, hated the truth, John 3, 19 to 21, dwelt in darkness, John 1, 4 to 5, had a heart of stone, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, were spiritually helpless, Ezekiel 16, 4 to 6, blind, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, spiritually blind, and could not repent, Jeremiah 13, 23. We needed the Holy Spirit to come and change our dead, evil hearts to hearts that are spiritually purified. Ezekiel 36.25, John 3.5, Colossians 2.11, renewed, and that now have a love of God, Jesus Christ, and his word. Titus 3.5, John 3, 3 and 6, 1 Corinthians 2.15, 1 John 2.20. <coughs> you can look this up later. If I went through all this, it, it would be too long. The Holy Spirit, based on our union with Christ, re-imparts the image of God in the narrow sense of true knowledge and righteousness. And I have to look these passages up later. I didn't take the time, but one's in Ephesians and one's in Colossians. When, when Adam fell, 
mankind lost the image of God in the narrower sense uh, because Adam before the fall had true righteousness in his being and true holiness in his being. It was natural for him to obey the law of God. That's why the two greatest theological, which are considered the two greatest theological problems in the Bible, are uh, how did Adam, who was righteous and holy, fall? And the other one would be, of course, the, the so-called problem of evil, which is not really a problem once you understand Scripture. Neither of them are problems once you understand Scripture. <clears throat> so, reimports the image of God in the narrowest sense draws us to Christ, John 6, 45 and 65, makes us a new man and a, or a new creation. And uh, I, didn't look, I didn't take the time to look those up. I was rushed this week, but that's one's Gal I, uh, I think those passages are found in Galatians and Corinthians. The Spirit opens our hearts so we will believe and obey the gospel, Acts 16, 13 to 14. Paul preaches to a group of people by a, by a river uh, where they were meeting. And it says Lydia opened the Holy Spirit opened Lydia's heart to believe the things spoken by Paul. Salvation is by grace. Our conversion to Christ and commitment to follow him as disciples comes from the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians four six. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we give God all the glory in our salvation. We believe because God enabled us to believe. We believe because the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see the truth and our deaf ears to hear the truth and raised us from the dead spiritually in regeneration. So regeneration or the new birth is the starting point or fountain of all the saving graces which are subjectively applied to the sinner. Conversion, repentance, and holiness of life are fruits of regeneration, not the source. Okay, Billy Graham, many years ago, before many of you were born, wrote a book called The New Birth. And the book is totally heretical. Arminians teach that you make yourself born again by exercising faith in Christ. Well, the problem with that view is that, uh, apart from the new birth, no man can see the truth. And somebody who's dead spiritually cannot believe, apart from a prior work of regeneration, a work of grace. The new birth always results in faith in Christ, where we lay hold of his vicarious sacrifice and imputed righteousness as the sole reason of our justification by God and adoption into his own family. It is also the starting point, the Puritans called it initial sanctification, of our lifelong struggle for growth and holiness or personal righteousness. John makes it clear that a person truly regenerated cannot lead a life characterized by sinful behavior. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin, and that's a habitual sense, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And that's not teaching sinless perfection. If you look at the verb tenses, he's talking about a lifestyle. You can't have a lifestyle of sin if you're a Christian. <clears throat> and he's certainly not teaching Christians never commit sin. He taught earlier in this epistle that it is wrong and unbiblical to claim that we do not sin, 1 John 1, eight, and that we need to confess our sins to God. His point is that regeneration constitutes a radical change in the personal in the person's nature so that he will no longer live a life characterized by sin. He sins because although his nature is renewed it is not yet perfected. But his sin is not habitual, it is not his lifestyle. <clears throat> 
as Jesus said, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, Matthew 7, 18. Someone who lived a life for self, for pleasures, to impress the world and party, you know, smoke pot, get drunk, fornicate, snort coke, lie, steal, whatever, will forsake such activities and instead practice righteousness. John says, 1 John 2.29, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Okay, so the starting point is regeneration. This union with Christ, which results in regeneration, is the platform or foundation on which we are commanded to live in terms of our new sanctified reality. After Paul describes our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, he says, Our old man, this is Romans 6, 6 and 10 to 11, Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The old person that we once were in our unregenerated, unconverted state was put to death in the death of Christ. Now, I see this as much more obvious and clear in people that were not raised Christians. It's, it's not as clear. Some people who were raised Christians never knew a time when they were unregenerate. They, they might have been regenerate from a very young age. But it's very clear in people that were raised pagans, and these epistles are written to audiences of primarily converted pagans. Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, that the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As Christians, we are dead to sin as regards its guilt and penalty. This judicial justification is the basis of our reception by the Holy, of the Holy Spirit, which changes us and breaks the dominion of sin in our lives. It is only in Christ that we are dead to sin and alive to God. It is his victory at the cross and empty tomb that secures our justification and the reception of the Holy Spirit. Okay, what did Christ do after he rose from the dead? Okay, he rose from the dead. He was given all authority over heaven and earth. He, he, and then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's now king over the universe. What, what's the first thing he does after he ascends? He pours out the Holy Spirit under the church. The New Testament is superior to the Old in that we have a greater effusion of the Holy Spirit. Because of what he, what he accomplished, we are dead to sin and what we once were. But now having a new heart and possessing the Holy Spirit, our new life is devoted to God through Christ. Once we understand by faith that our old life has ended, with the guilt fully paid, the curse of the law satisfied, and our slavery to Satan broken, we will want nothing to do with that old life. So part one of our lives is buried. It's buried. It's done. It is closed. It is ended. And now we live in part two. Love, service, discipleship, and devotion to Christ. The fact that our old man was crucified with Christ is the reason we must crucify the flesh throughout life. We despise what we were. And out of love and thanksgiving, we strive to be faithful to the new man. In Colossians 3, 1-4, Paul elaborates on this theme. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, 
where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We see all these rich people, I mean, ex exceptionally rich, with many mansions, great, incredible $100 million yachts, beautiful art collections, hundreds of beautiful cars, you know, Lamborghinis and, and uh, all these incredible supercars that cost millions and millions of dollars. And you know what? They're going to die. And all that's going to go to somebody else. They're going to die. But if we dedicate our life to Christ, if we obey Christ, if we follow Christ, and think about things in heaven, and don't dwell upon getting rich and, and uh, worldly things, uh, it doesn't matter. Of course, if you're Christian, you want to pass that on to, to faithful children who are going to serve Christ. Second. So that's the first point, regeneration. That's always the starting point when we're talking about uh, sanctification. Second, there is the continued work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is the Holy Spirit who applies the Word of God to our hearts, enlightens our minds to understand it, convicts us of sin when we disobey it, <coughs> and enables, it, enables us to obey it to the glory of God. Everything we need to live righteous, holy lives and put on the breastplate of righteousness is found in sacred scripture. But the ability to understand and believe scripture, as well as the power to obey it, comes from the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, he meant it literally. It is his spirit that comes in us, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to believe and obey for this reason, Paul calls the various aspects of holiness or personal righteousness the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And he says to us, Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. When Jude describes ungodly, wicked men who follow their own lusts, he explains it by saying they are sensual persons, they, they, they follow their own unlawful lusts, not having the Spirit. Verse 19. Why are they that way? They don't have the Holy Spirit. Don't be surprised when unbelievers act wickedly. That's their nature. The expression walk is simply a Hebrew way of saying how we should conduct our lives. The only way to be righteous is to be under the con constant, moment-by-moment, -moment, direct direction, control, and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, this does not mean inner promptings of the Holy Spirit, like mystical promptings. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit speaks to you, like you hear an audible voice or something. It doesn't mean that. It's not something like that. <clears throat> He doesn't speak to us directly, but it means that he changes, molds, directs, and sanctifies our hearts or minds through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit works through means. The primary means, of course, is the Word of God. The Word of God without the Spirit is a dead letter. It cannot produce faith or conviction apart from the efficacy of Christ in us. Now, it is important that we understand that the Spirit's change to our hearts is not complete in this life. 
the power or slavery to sin is broken, but the flesh remains, and we are not able to perform the moral law perfectly, especially in our thought lives. The holiness that Christ imparts makes us willing, but we are simply unable to give a full obedience. Now, I bring this up because there are interpretations of Romans and so forth that say, oh yeah, the union with Christ, the flesh is removed totally. Well, if that were true, Christians would be sinless. And they're all sinners, and that's obvious. I've, you know, I've been in a number of denominations. I've been to various presbyteries and synods, and ministers are all sinners. The best of ministers are all sinners. The Apostle Paul was a sinner, and the great, probably the greatest of Christians. So that's simply not true. Paul, perhaps the greatest saint who ever lived, had a strong desire for perfect obedience, but could not perform it due to the sin that dwelt in him, the flesh of the old man. He says that specifically in Romans 7, 16-23. This point needs to be made it, noted, not to make excuses for sin, for there are no valid or good re excuses for iniquity, but so that we understand the importance of striving for righteousness and praying for the assistance of the Spirit. Satan is the accuser of the saints, and he likes to point to our sins and failures as reasons why we should give up. If you're really good, he's going to try to get you to be self-righteous and arrogant, fill you with pride. If you fall and you sin and, you have, and you're struggling with sin, some sin in your life, he's going to come to you and he's going to say, oh, you're not even a Christian. Give it up. Well, you're, well, you're wasting your time. You might as well just go be a pagan and have some fun. So he's going to go at you from both angles. That's why we have to, even as we're striving to be holy, uh, we have to remember our justification in Christ. We're not saved because of what we do. We're saved solely by the righteousness of Christ and his precious blood. <clears throat> that the regenerate person will never give up, ever. Over time, the Spirit applying the word will more and more transform us to be like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And then third, and this is critical, because it is ignored today. The standard of righteousness or our sanctification, which is the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, not the Apocrypha, especially is, is, is the Bible, especially the moral law of God. And in, our, in God's providence, we sang Psalm 1, which talks about don't sit with the scorners, don't sit with the wicked, don't hang out with the wicked. But instead, what does the righteous man do? He meditates on God's law day and night. And also Psalm 119. Read a whole uh, Psalm 119. That still applies today. We're not dispensationalists. It's talking about the moral law. I meditate on the law day and night that I might not sin against you. Lord, put your law in my heart. Cause me to love it. Cause me to obey it. The New Testament does not abrogate the Old Testament moral laws or change them. The epistles simply apply the Old Testament moral laws to current situations. Let's take, for example, the word fornication. Well, that means sexual immorality. It's a general word for sexual immorality. It covers all sorts of things. Bestiality, homosexuality, cross-dressing, transvestitism, adultery. It covers everything. Well, how do we define the word fornication? What does sexual immorality mean? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament moral law and see what sexual sins are, and that's how we learn what the word fornication means. Right? Because if you don't do that, if you define sexual immorality according to modern pagan culture, then homosexuals are perfectly fine. 
and God is in favor of uh, sodomy between men, which is an abomination. Even the thought of that's an abomination. It's totally wicked. It's totally disgusting. It's super unnatural. And by the way, bestiality, uh, which is clearly condemned as a death penalty offense in the Old Testament, it's not even repeated in the New Testament. So if you're a radical dispensationalist, uh, how do you condemn bestiality? Well, you have to appeal to the word fornication. Well, how do you define the word fornication? You've got to go to the Old Testament law. Well, it is true that ceremonial laws and laws peculiar to Israel as a nation have been abrogated. The moral laws, for example, the Ten Commandments, and all the moral case laws that explain and flesh out the Ten Commandments still apply. These, these moronic professing Christians who say, well, only the Ten Commandments apply today. All those other laws in the Old Testament, we can ignore those. That only applies to Israel. Oh, so you tell me you're allowed to trip a blind man? So you tell me that you're allowed to gossip behind your neighbor's back? Of course, that's repeated in the New Testament, but many of these laws are not. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, where does that come from? That comes from the Old Testament. <laughs> All these moral laws. If, you're, if your neighbor's uh, cow falls into the ditch... Uh, so you're allowed to leave them in the ditch and let the cow die? The Old Testament says you have to help the cow out and give it back to your neighbor. All these laws in the Old Testament are clearly, very clearly, moral laws. They're applications of the Ten Commandments, and they still apply today. And we want to learn those so we know how to behave. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit uses the means of grace to sanctify believers. There's the ministry of preaching, Bible reading, the sacraments, prayer, and the fellowship and interaction of the saints within the body of Christ. But all these things are defined by and fully dependent on the primary means, the Word of God. And some of the founding reformers talked about the really the, the, the sole means of sanctification, the sole means of grace, is really the Holy Spirit applying the Word of God. These other things are... Uh, helps to the Word of God. The sacraments are visible signs and symbols, but they're, if they're not defined by the Word of God, they're meaningless. It is necessary to study the Scriptures and learn what it means and requires of us if we are to define sin and see what righteousness in God's eyes is. Those who look for secret revelations of the Spirit or inner promptings are often notorious antinomians. Look at the charismatic movement. They produced more heretics and more fornicating wild men than I can imagine. If we are to be righteous, we must learn the will of God, and the only way to know God's will is to learn it from special revelation in the Bible. <clears throat> Jesus said, John 17, 17, and this is his high priestly prayer, Sanctify them, the elect, by your truth, your word is truth. And Peter concurred when he said, 1 Peter 1.22, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren. To new believers, he adds this, 1 Peter 2.2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So true righteousness consists in submitting to the whole Bible and the whole moral law of God in the Bible. A truly sanctified heart does not come to the scriptures and pick and choose what it will follow or not obey uh, based on personal opinion, which is human autonomy, but seeks to perform the whole will of God. The Bible's not a smorgasbord. You know, I really, 
I understand this law about drunkenness. It's really bad to get drunk. You might get in a car wreck, and it's really bad for your health, and it causes you to behave badly. But, hey, I really like fornication. I'm going to keep doing that. No, you can't go to the Bible that way. You, you have to submit to, have faith in, obey the whole moral law of God. And this point in the connection between Scripture and personal righteousness is set forth by Paul in 2 Timothy 3:15 to 17. I've picked this passage because it summarizes the Word of God and its relation to our sanctification beautifully. One of the best passages in the New Testament. You know the Holy Scriptures, he's talking to Timothy, you know the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it means it's God-breathed, it comes from God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Apostle sets forth the purpose of Scripture in two parts. The first, obviously the starting point, is salvation. No one can be saved without a knowledge and faith and special revelation. Salvation is the beginning of the Christian life. And then second, once we are Christians, the Bible provides four things for us to be righteous, obedient disciples of Christ. Number one, the scriptures are to be taught and learned. There are our standard for faith and life. They show us everything we are required to believe and everything Christ requires of us. Our theology, ethics, worldview, manner of life, philosophy <clears throat> must be based solely on scripture. And the reason, of course, is that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is inspired. It is infallible. It is trustworthy. Here we have absolute truth that is totally reliable and perspicuous. It's easy to understand. That's why when people say, well, we don't need to follow Scripture. We need to follow natural law. Well, that's just a smokescreen for disobeying Scripture. Because nothing in natural law is going to contradict or differ from what is taught in Scripture. Scripture is perspicuous. It's easy to understand. Number two, the Bible is for reproof or correction. It informs us how we have disobeyed God or failed to measure up to his perfect standard. By revealing to us our sin, it causes godly sorrow and distress to bring us to repentance. And think of those penitential psalms where David he says, I'm crying all night long. I can't sleep. My bones ache in my body. The guilt. He knew the Bible. He wrote most of the Psalter. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And that guilt made him miserable. The Holy Spirit brings specific passages to our mind when we stray so we can know exactly what we need to do. The more complete our knowledge of Scripture, the more ammunition the Holy Spirit has in bringing conviction. We need an interior heart rebuke, reproof, or conviction if we are to walk in the Spirit. We need inner rebukes, reproofs, and conviction to die daily, 1 Corinthians 15.31, and repeatedly put to death the deeds of the flesh. Conviction must lead to crucifixion of the old man. And Paul says, Romans 8.5.13-14, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's talking about eternal death, the curse. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And then there's number three. And these are all closely related, and they really logically follow each upon another. The scriptures are for correction. The word means literally to stand up straight again. And in an ethical or doctrinal sense, it means a restoration to an upright or right state. Christians often stumble doctrinally or ethically, usually ethically. When they fall flat on their face, they can only be restored by submitting to what the Bible says about their particular sin or doctrinal error. The Word of God contains all the solutions to our problems and our sinful decisions. To remedy the situation brought on by our foolishness and rebellion, the issue first must be defined by Scripture. Then the Spirit applies the biblical teaching to the heart, bringing conviction and godly sorrow for sin. This is followed by correction. The sin is identified, repented of, and replaced with the appropriate biblical behavior. There can be no substitute for biblical correction. Sanctification depends on this daily process. Psychiatry, psychology, positive thinking, the power of positive thinking supposedly, does not sanctify or solve problems because such procedures are humanistic. Because they are not biblically based, they do not identify sin, and they do not require biblical correction. If you look at most humanistic methods, where it's psychiatry, pop psychology, psychologists, Scientology, and the e-meter, and all that nonsense, and, and, and all this stuff, all these secular counselors, their primary means is to get you to disregard your guilt, to bury it. Not deal with it, not repent, but to redefine sin. So it's okay. Or by seeking to medicate the depression caused by such unbiblical behaviors by the use of powerful drugs. Prozac and so forth. Okay, they want you to deny and justify sin. Or they give you drugs. But they don't deal with it. They don't deal with guilt. They don't deal with sin. Such humanistic foolishness is probably the reason that psychiatrists have a much higher suicide rate than the general population. I don't know if you know that. Psychiatrists, these men who get PhDs and they get these degrees and they're supposed to be able to help people solve their problems, have a higher suicide rate than the average population. Why is that? Well, because it's humanistic nonsense. That's why. You can bury your sin. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can redefine it as supposedly good behavior, as the sodomites have done and the Democrats do with murdering babies. But it's still there. The guilt is still there. And the problems that guilt brings are still there. I know a lot of pagan women. I used to be a pagan. I know a lot of pagan women that had abortions. And they're miserable. And they're full of guilt. They, they say, oh, it's not a baby. It's just a lump of flesh. It's like a tumor. And they, but deep down they know they murdered their baby. And they feel miserable. And it ruins their thought. It ruins them. It ruins their life. Number four. The scriptures train us in righteousness. The point of this process of biblical change by learning and submitting to the scriptures as 
as we are illuminated, convicted, and corrected by the Holy Spirit's application of biblical truths to our mind or heart, is to follow a habitual pattern of righteousness in our lives. There's a progression here. It is not enough to break a few old sinful habits here and there, or to stop sinning on occasion. If we are not fully dedicated to a complete biblical submission and transformation, then a repentance is only piecemeal, and that's not a true biblical repentance. We must put off our old heathen manner of life and replace it with a disciplined, holy, righteous lifestyle. Sanctification is all about change, a progress in holiness, a dedication to a full life of obedience and service to Christ. As Paul says, Romans 2.2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Holy Spirit transforms your mind how? Using scripture, as we just saw in Timothy. With all this in mind, let us reflect on this teaching and ask some questions. Uh, ourselves some questions. And we're just going to start some application here, and I've ran out of time, but we'll just start this. And Lord willing, hopefully we can continue this. Are we developing bitter, biblical patterns of thought so that our actions are holy and righteous? Okay, and you need to learn scripture, and you need to learn God's law. Christians are super ignorant. Most Christians today, uh, I knew a guy, he was, at a, he, was a, he was a book, he was a bookseller, he was at a book conference, and he went around they went around and they asked, these are all these evangelicals. They went around asking all these evangelicals uh, if they could recite the Ten Commandments. They couldn't even recite the Ten Commandments. Now, it used to be in the old days that all Protestants and even all Roman Catholics, when I was raised a Roman Catholic, we had to memorize the Ten Commandments. Why is that important? Well, it's, it's the summary of the whole moral law. That's the starting point. Then you've got to learn all the case laws and you've got to study all this stuff. Are we developing biblical patterns of thought so our actions are holy and righteous? Are the ethical standards of God's moral law our standards? Or are we following some other standard that comes from society? When Christians go soft on homosexuality, when Christians go soft on fornication and divorce, which they have been repeatedly over and over and again in our history, it's because they're not submitting to Scripture. They're adopting uh, pagan attitudes and pagan worldviews. That's what they're doing. They're adapting and incorporating things into their thought life that God hates. What do you think God thinks of homosexual marriage? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. He rained down burning sulfur, fire, and brimstone. That's what brimstone is. It's sulfur that's flaming. It burns your flesh right off. What do you think God thinks about America right now? Are we fully dedicated to breaking, putting off Ephesians 4, 22, 25, 28, 29, with the world's and the flesh's patterns of thought and behavior. If we are to develop a righteous lifestyle, a habitual pattern of holy living, we must saturate our minds with scripture and learn to always say no to sin or anything that contradicts the will of God. We must die to self, crucify our flesh, and learn to walk in the ways of the Lord. True wisdom is to put the will of God into daily experience and practice. 
And by this, we are not only sanctified, but we learn by personal experience how perfect, good, and holy the Word of God really is. That's what people don't understand. Satan convinces people that the life of following the flesh and going out and fornicating and taking drugs and doing all these things that are unlawful. Satan tries to convince them that's the good life, that's the fun life. Well, look at these rock stars. Look at these Hollywood people. The average marriage in America lasts eight years. People are divorced. It, it's terrible on the children. It's terrible for society and culture. Our society is wicked. And single women vote almost very heavily for Democrats because they look to the state as their God and they reject the God of the Bible because they're living immoral lives. And of course, the men that abandon them and commit adultery are totally wicked and evil. There is not a moment of our life that should be outside of God's prescribed will, his holy commandments, and his precious doctrine. The sanctified life is a life of blessing, progress, and meaning. Without it, all is futile and returns to the dust of death. So this, this idea that we should all be narcissists. And I know social media, it's just such poison for young people. This idea that we should all be concerned about being popular with the world and that we should love the things of the world and that we should strive for the things of this world and that we should serve the lust of the flesh. It's absolute foolishness. Someday you're going to die. And that beautiful body of yours that you looked in the mirror and you combed your hair and you brushed your teeth and you washed your face and you admired your young beauty, that's going to rot and be consumed by maggots and worms. And your soul's either going to go to heaven or it's going to descend right into hell. So this is important. Put the word of God in your mind and obey it. Follow the spirit. Walk in the spirit. And if you have that breastplate of righteousness, the darts, the, the attacks of the devil will be defeated. We'll have to stop there. I've run out of time. But this is a very important topic. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Your word is amazing. We've just scratched the surface, Lord. It's so amazing. Help us, Lord, to love your word. Help us, Lord, to hide it in our hearts, to memorize it, to learn it. And most of all, bend our hearts to obey it. Give us a love of it. Give us a holy hatred of sin. We still have to battle our wicked, sinful flesh. We hate it. We still have to fight against unlawful lusts. Give us that strength, Lord, by your spirit to obey your holy, righteous, wonderful, perfect word of God that we may please your dear son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. He, made, he gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. Let us sacrifice our lives for him in obedience and faith, covenant faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.